I love doing research and I plan to continue doing research, but my favorite part of doing this is that after I find something that's important, I'm able to communicate it to other people, whether it's through writing it up or doing some public speaking events. And I just love educating other people, especially about health-related things that can help them. You might think that science is boring, hard to understand, or maybe you believe that scientists are hiding the truth from you about aliens or chemtrails. Well, we're here to prove that wrong. Whether you love science or you think it sucks, this is the show for you. Welcome to the 14th episode of Science Sucks. I am thrilled this week to be speaking with the incredible Ashley Stenzel, a PhD candidate in cancer epidemiology at Roswell Park Cancer Institute in Buffalo, New York. Specifically, she studies ovarian cancer. We chat about her experience as a teen mom, turning her back on science only to come back and get that PhD, and her passion for science outreach and education. Plus, we debunk some myths and conspiracy theories about cancer, coming from a researcher herself. So without further ado, let's hear from the amazing Ashley Senzel. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your journey to science? Where did you become interested in science and where you are now? So for me, I started to really like science when I was in high school. I actually had this ninth grade chemistry class that I became like obsessed with chemistry and the periodic table of elements. And I felt like for sure I wanted to go into science when I left high school. Uh, however, I had this math teacher who I had issues with this one concept in class. And I remember I asked him if I could meet early before class one day to talk about what I was having issues with. And he kind of sat me down and asked me, like, what do you want to do when you leave high school? And I said, I want to go on to a program at a university, and I'm thinking science or engineering or something along those lines. And he just kind of point blank looked me in the face and said, you're not the type of girl who can do science or math, and you need to just get done with the bare minimum and move on with something easier. And so for me, unfortunately, it felt like a really hard blow. I felt like this was somebody I trusted, it was an authority figure, so for kind of a long time, maybe like five years after that happened, I just felt like I'm not smart enough to do science or math, and even though I still felt like I loved it, I felt too scared to go into it, because I thought this person would know if I was meant for it or not, and fortunately for me, he was very wrong, but it took me a long time to figure that out. Wow, my jaw just dropped when you said that. I was like, how dare he? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So then you felt discouraged, but you found your way? You found, like, the courage to keep trying math and science? No, actually, I didn't. (laughs) I really was like, all right, well, I 
I actually started high school math when I was in middle school, so it's not like I wasn't good at it, but I just kind of was like, all right, well, I've already met the bare minimum, so I guess I'm going to stop taking these classes, because yeah. if he said that, then he must be right. He's the math teacher, but I um, actually ended up becoming pregnant in high school and having my first daughter, and when I decided to go on to college, I chose a college that was an all-girls school, and the main reason I chose it is because I knew that they were very supportive of teen moms trying to get their college education. But it was here that I was required to take a science course for my generals. And it was like my teacher ended up becoming my advisor because she was so passionate and it just kind of relit that flame inside of me that really wanted to pursue science. And she was so supportive that I ended up deciding that I was gonna give it a try again. That's amazing. I'm glad that you found someone who was supportive and helpful to you. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened next? What kind of program did you end up pursuing? Well, I ended up getting my bachelor degree in biology. And getting that was a struggle just because I was a mom. So I needed to work. I usually actually ended up working overtime, not just full time while I was going to school, my undergraduate degree. And, um, it was really hard because I obviously had to constantly try to find a balance between working, being a mom, studying, and my GPA wasn't great when I left my undergrad. So I decided to do a master's and I chose clinical research because when I worked, it was in the hospital setting. So I knew I wanted to do science that involved working with people. And that's when I felt like when I started my master's degree, I was able to start with a clean slate and I ended up doing really well and after that I decided to go on to my PhD so that I can be my own PI. Yes. (laughs) Amazing and that's where you are now? Yep I'm just finishing up my PhD and kind of looking at my options for after. Yeah and what is uh, what is your research for your PhD that you're finishing up? Well I am doing cancer epidemiology and the thing about this topic is that cancer is really an umbrella term so we refer to cancer like it's one disease but it's really not it actually covers a lot of different diseases like lung cancer ovarian cancer cancer in the blood and bones these are all like really different diseases but what I love about what I research is that it's really transferable so most of my thesis, or I guess all of my thesis, is on ovarian cancer research because I'm really passionate about gynecologic oncologies because women who get these diseases, they're just awful diseases to get. Um, but I also have other interests in diseases that are really highly fatal, so I'm able to use my skills for all different types of cancers, and I really like that. Yeah, that's amazing. So epidemiology and gynecology together is about how the diseases, um, kind of how they affect populations of people, right? Yeah. So I'm looking at like, are there ways we can tell who is going to have a worse prognosis? Like, is there a way we can see who might be at a higher risk of dying from the disease? And if we can, then is there some type of intervention we can implement to help them live longer? Yeah. Wow. I, a few weeks ago, I did an interview with a breast cancer researcher, and mm-hmm. he talked about how, for example, he studies breast cancer in black women and a specific breast cancer that's particularly um, like triple negative breast cancer yeah. is like um, more likely to be fatal and is more common in black women. So it's like poor outcomes in that population. 
Yeah, and that's actually what I'm doing right now is I'm looking at survival in black women with ovarian cancer because ovarian cancer is primarily in white women. Mm-hmm. However, there is a chunk of black women who will be diagnosed and they have much worse survival. So I'm starting to ask questions like, how can we explain why they aren't living as long as white women? The researcher I mentioned is Sean Hercules. He was in episode four of our podcast, so you can dig that up out of the archives if you want to learn about his research. As a PhD candidate at McMaster University, he looks at breast cancer, specifically triple negative breast cancer, a very aggressive type of cancer that is more common in black women than in other populations and is linked to higher mortality rates. Sean and Ashley are tackling two different types of cancer, but they're asking similar questions, like what is the root of some of the racial disparities we see in healthcare. This research is so important to better understand the specific risk factors and needs of marginalized groups. Now let's get back to Ashley to see what sparked her interest to explore a disease like cancer. Why did you choose this field specifically? You said you're passionate about um, like gynecology and women's health specifically. Yeah, um, when I was working in my undergrad, and I guess also in my master's, I worked with patients with diseases, but in the hospital I worked at, I mean, I come from Minnesota and we don't have a lot of really like big action emergency room cases coming through the door like you would see on ER TV shows. So what we really saw was more just patients with chronic diseases like cancer who are coming in with these really awful complications from their disease. And so I just kind of remember um, seeing all these patients come through the door and feeling like, wow, there's so many things that could be improved just not even looking at whether or not they're going to live with their cancer, but how well can they actually live with it as far as quality of life goes. You also wrote a book, which sounds amazing. So can you tell us more about the book you wrote and what it's about? Yeah, so this was actually kind of funny because when I wrote this book, I wrote it for my daughters for Christmas, and I really had no intention in making it publicly available, but I published it and um, I had some family members ask me to put it on Amazon because they wanted to order some copies of it. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And then more and more people started asking me about it. So I kind of was like, well, shoot, if I would have known people were going to want this, I would have done a lot more for it. So that's how I ended up doing the second edition. (laughs) I felt like, okay, well, if people actually want this book, then it needs to be better. So I, I wrote it to basically the purpose of the book it's called the ABCs of women in STEM and I just wanted to show my daughters who are young but they love science I wanted to show them how many women are actually working in science and doing really cool things from all different areas and I wanted to make sure it was really diverse both in job and in the women that were represented in it so that was my goal for it and um I also wanted to focus on present-day women because I feel like it's easy to look at women who received a lot of recognition in the past, like Marie Curie um, and people like Rachel Carson, and they're really cool, but at the same time, there's so many cool women that just never get recognized, so I did a lot of digging online and through some local associations and national, international associations trying to just find everyday women that are working in science and math. Wow, yeah, because then uh, your your daughters and other kids can look up to them and they can say, yeah. wow, they're doing that right now. I could probably do that too. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. I love that you're trying to recognize women that aren't being given the like biggest awards because, yeah, um, yeah they deserve it too. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, most of us won't be awarded in our life. I mean, I, we see the statistics that men received much more recognition than women. So I feel like this was a way to say, hey, look at all these everyday women that are doing just as good of a job. Yeah, that's amazing. I think even with all the conversations about like the Nobel Prize and how there's a lot of ways in which it's it's rigged in a way that makes it less likely for um, marginalized people to get those awards. So it's nice that that's not the bar. We're not just looking at the famous people. We're looking at the cool scientists doing everyday work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What kind of women do you have in the book, for example? Uh, For me, so this was really tricky because I decided to go with the ABC format mostly because I have a young daughter who's, she just turned five, so she's in preschool still. (laughs) And I wanted it to be interesting to her, but I also thought it was fun because it allowed me to like jump from topic to topic without having it organized by necessarily the topic it goes in, but just by letter. But doing so, I had to really search and search for different roles that started with these letters. So I ended up learning a lot myself about all these different jobs I had never heard of. So I have jobs that um, are more common, like I have cancer researchers in it. I have physicists. I have um, astronomers and oceanographers. But then I also have some hardcore engineering women in there too, like minerals and mining engineering, which is something I knew nothing about. But when I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's cool. And women that are in forensic science and just kind of some really random areas, robotics, bioinformatics, um, just things that I thought were cool and found some awesome ladies in. That's amazing. It's nice that there's a broad range so girls can pick whatever they want to do. Yeah. It's fun how you kind of accidentally became an author. Yeah. (laughs) You stumbled upon it. So why do you think outreach, things like writing books, for example, is important for scientists to do, to reach to the public? I think it's important for a couple of different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally love to participate in outreach because I want to kind of be able to lift up other people who have had experiences like mine where somebody has told them they can't do something. And I think this is particularly relevant for women and women of color who want to join STEM. Because I think there are a lot of people who either directly or indirectly are telling them that they are not meant to be in this field. So I want to be a voice to say, I believe you can do it. And if you want to do it, you should do it. Because even if people don't make it seem as welcoming, this is a place for you as well. But I also believe in outreach in general for scientists of all different backgrounds because I I feel like now more than ever in the world we're in, we need scientists to speak up about evidence-based topics. Like I'm seeing just this huge blast on vaccines that's been continuing and it seems like even though we put effort into it, there's still so many people who are you know, like right now in the US we have all these measles outbreaks because people aren't vaccinating their kids and they're scared of false information and I feel like no matter a scientist's background there's some way that they can put forward information through outreach that can help people develop their scientific understanding yeah yeah I really agree even with information about like climate change how it's like a very urgent problem I think we need all hands on deck including science communication yeah totally yeah speaking of science communication I feel like a lot of people especially around cancer and like and like who gets it and how dangerous it is I think a lot of people have myths and fears about it so there are there any myths that you like to bust right here as a cancer researcher yeah so this one I think 
it might sound far-fetched, but I actually see it a lot, especially online, and it is completely mind-boggling. I always see people say that there's not really a huge need for cancer research because people know the cure for cancer, but it's not being revealed because we want some type of money or whatever it might be, but... (laughs) That's definitely not the case, and if I knew the cure for cancer, I would gladly be out of a job. I mean, I would much rather have a cure for cancer be out there than me have a job in cancer research, and I don't think people understand that. Um, It's just one of those conspiracy theories that it seems so crazy, but at the same time, I see it so often online. And another one is about the HPV vaccine, and this is one that I'm particularly passionate about because... HPV does cause cancer, and especially in women, it causes cervical cancer and vaginal and vulvar cancer, and also cancer of the head and neck, and it can it causes these cancers in boys, the head and neck cancer, and also penile cancer, and cancer of the anus, so it's one that it causes so many different cancers, and yet so many people keep saying that the HPV vaccine causes more harm than it does good, and that's not the case, and all of the research shows that that's not the case, but unfortunately it, it's still being spread around this false information. And so all I can do is keep trying to correct it when I'm able to. I think that so many risk, risk factors for cancer are like complex, like your diet and your lifestyle and where you live, but something like this is so simple. So I can see how you get frustrated about it. Yeah, there's actually um, the CDC in the United States has this ad that we used to have up in our office and it just said in big letters if there was a vaccine to prevent your kids from getting cancer wouldn't you do it and that's what the hpv vaccine is it's a way that you can protect your children from getting so many future cancers but i don't think people genuinely understand that so i just keep trying to educate on it yeah yeah i think you're doing really important work life-saving work what is your favorite part of your job my favorite part is the outreach so i love doing research and I plan to continue doing research but my favorite part of doing this is that after I find something that's important I'm able to communicate it to other people whether it's through writing it up or doing some public speaking events and I just love educating other people especially about health related things that can help them yeah yeah that's so important yeah, the other re- cancer researcher I talked to also was like, we do outreach for women with cancer, with breast cancer. So I feel like scientists love to share what they know with the community. Yeah, definitely. Aside, Evie here, there are many organizations that support folks who are going through cancer treatment and their family. I just mentioned our pal Shang Hercules again, who works with the Olive Branch of Hope, a Toronto-based community that supports black women diagnosed with breast cancer. He shared his enthusiasm for doing community outreach as a scientist. Rather than doing research in a bubble, researchers like Sean and Ashley love to speak to real-life humans who could be impacted and informed by their research. The American Cancer Society has a Minority Cancer Awareness section, which acknowledges that minority groups in the United States bear a greater burden for many cancers. Now, Sean worked at the Olive Branch of Hope in Toronto, but with a quick Google search, you can find a group that can reflect your identity and is in your area. Here are a few I came across. Sisters Network Inc. was founded by a breast cancer survivor, Karen E. Jackson. When Jackson was diagnosed in 1994, she had trouble finding a support system of black women to help her through a difficult time, so she created one. The organization is centered on black women battling breast cancer. 
The Black Women's Health Imperative was founded in 1983 and it's still the United States only organization solely dedicated to improving the wellness of African American women and girls. They not only offer programs to support black women, but also use advocacy, policy, and research translation to help black women be informed and live longer, healthier lives. Just like Ashley said, it's so important that the research doesn't just stay in the lab, but actually reaches the groups that are going to be impacted. An organization called Latinas Contra Cancer provides cancer health education and family support group services based on underserved, low-income, and Spanish-speaking women. When it comes to the queer community, we have the National LGBT Cancer Network, which provides programs and resources like cultural competency training and a directory of LGBT welcoming cancer screening facilities. They also offer more comprehensive cancer health assessment tools that are inclusive and relevant to the LGBT community. So you might wonder, what does cancer even have to do with your sexuality? Well, studies show that queer folks are statistically more likely to smoke, drink, and have higher rates of obesity than other populations, which are all factors linked to increased cancer risk. They are also less likely to be up to date on cancer screenings and have health insurance in the first place. When you're queer, getting healthcare that is relevant and not judgmental can be a struggle. Studies also show that oncologists themselves have gaps in their knowledge when it comes to risk factors and the unique needs of the LGBTQ community. There's one group that we haven't talked about yet, and that's low-income folks. A study was done by the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. It found that lower-income populations are less likely to have their symptoms recognized early, and when it comes to cancer, early detection is key. They're also less likely to have a regular family doctor who can refer them to screenings for that early diagnosis. And of course, there are gaps in accessing health education in low-income communities. The group that conducted this survey, the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, is working to better understand why there are education gaps and working to address them. Now remember, this is in Canada, a wealthy country with universal healthcare, and yet low-income people of color and queer patients still aren't receiving equitable care. So I'm so grateful to scientists like Ashley for doing outreach projects to promote better health and education for everyday human beings who need it. I'm getting a little emotional and passionate because I've had many health problems over the past year and I've had a range of doctors and nurses and pharmacists. Some of them made me cry and want to never come back to their clinic and some of them offered kindness and truly life-saving advice. So for something as vulnerable as healthcare, having a provider who treats you with respect, understanding, and knows the needs of your marginalized identity is powerful. And it all starts with research. So let's hand it back to Ashley for some Monday motivation. Do you have any advice for young women and girls in STEM? Yeah, my one piece of advice really is just don't give up because I feel like it can be so hard at times and there's so many times when you feel like this would just be easier if I went into a different area where there's more women. But if it's something you're passionate about, I think you should reach out and um, if you even just go on Google, you can search local associations for women in STEM or women in science. And there are resources that I don't think a lot of girls and women understand or know about. And it's just something that I highly recommend you get in contact with some local organizations like 500 Women in Science, things like that, who you can create relationships that will help you through the hard times. Yeah. Your daughters are very lucky to have someone who's so inspiring like you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
And where can people find you on your social media or any upcoming events? Yeah, I am on Twitter. Um, I'm new on Twitter, so I just got it in November, and I'm still kind of figuring it out, but I I think I've got it down. So my handle is Ashley E. Stenzel, S-T-E-N-Z-E-L. And then I'm also telling my story of going from a teen mom to a PhD at the Toronto Story Collider, and that's on April 25th at Burdock Brewery. Yes. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm in Toronto, so I will be there. (laughs) Great. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't wait to hear that as well. And uh, sometimes the story colliders are posted as a podcast as well. So when when that comes out, maybe people can listen to that as well. Yeah, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. And I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the awesome story you had to tell. Thank you. Alright, so that was our interview. Now, spoiler alert, Ashley's talk that she mentioned is coming up on April 25th already happened because time doesn't make sense in the podcast universe. I'll tell you a little bit about how it went. So Story Collider is a science storytelling event series that takes place all over the world. At each event, five speakers share a powerful personal story that is interwoven with a little bit of science. While many of the speakers like Ashley are scientists, you don't have to be a scientist for science to relate to your life. Science is everywhere, so we all have a story to tell. Now, Ashley gave her talk at the most recent event in Toronto. Her story was incredible and moving, filled with delightful and sometimes not so delightful stories about her kids. If you didn't catch the show in Toronto, Story Collider posts selected stories on their podcast so you can look out for her talk on your favorite podcast app in the near future. Speaking of podcasts, thank you all for listening. Be sure to rate and review the pod so other folks can find it and catch us tweeting at Pod. You can find Ashley on Twitter at Ashley E. Stenzel, but Ashley already told you that. You can check out her book, The ABCs of Women in STEM. I've linked it below for you as well as all social media links. So grab a copy of her book to inspire a young woman in your life. Just like Ashley mentioned, being a woman in a male-dominated field can feel isolating at times, and having a support system can help you through it. So I'd recommend checking out your local chapter of 500 Women Scientists. Ashley and I are each a member of our local chapters. There are groups around the world and in many major cities to help you connect with fellow women in STEM. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. I hope you find hope and a positive community around you. And have a beautiful week.